don't know why I've had Ali, are you okay? Stuck in my head. Did some, was somebody playing that earlier or something? I've just, or did somebody ask someone if they're okay? Anyway, this week on the Eldritch Lawcast. Dale is muted. I don't remember what the question was. <laughs> uh, talking about the Playtest 5 survey results. Oh, God, uh, I don't know. <laughs> all right, fair enough. Yeah, that's fair. Everyone has been so hyped about it that it has made me hyped about it. You know who else is excited about this? Hasbro. <laughs> Text my group and say, hey, everybody free this Friday to play. There's always someone saying, no, I can't. I, I, do you think that Baldur's Gate 3 will be more profitable for them than Honor Among Thieves? You need to see it in play. You need to see how it adds to the game or detracts from the game. We're talking about Daggerheart now? Daggerheart. Yes. All that and more right now. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of the Eldritch Lawcast. The number one tabletop RPG podcast in all the spheres. That's right. This is the OG flavour of Lawcast. My name is Ben Byrne. If you've never listened to an episode before, I am here joined as always by Dale Kingsmill, James Hake, Sean Merwin. And Sean, uh, speaking of regulars to this podcast, Gethin has a question for you, which is uh, with Daggerheart being a 2D12 system, uh, Infinity, the role-playing game by Modifius, is a 2D20 system. Uh, what dice, uh, what two dice are you using for your 2DX system if you were to create one? If I'm creating whole cloth, I'm using a 2D6 system, but not in the same way that, say, a Powered by the Apocalypse game uses them. I'm using the simplest dice I can that everyone will have. And I will make this game very simple to understand by just rolling those two dice and doing something fun but simple with them. I'm not going to tell okay. you what, though, because it's a secret. <laughs> it's a, there's a bigger conversation than, mm-hmm. a, than a podcast opener. Uh, yeah, I think I agree. 2D6 is probably where I would go as well, but, but with some adjustments. Uh, James Hake, what about yourself? It's so hard to pick a 2D whatever system that hasn't been taken already, right? Like Sean said, 2D6, Powered by the Apocalypse. 2D12, Daggerheart, 2D20, Modifius, 2D10, World of Darkness, which leaves me with only two options, 2D8 or 2D4. And I have to say, Caltrops, the RPG, is looking mighty appealing right about now. (laughs) I believe that leaves me with 2D8, which is fine because I think the D8s are the most magical dice shape. Uh, So I feel like I could do something with that. I also, you know, in the midst of this conversation, feel like there's something in a past the pigs based RPG system. You ever play past the pigs? You got two little, yeah, yeah, yeah. You got two little pigs and you roll them like dice. And then depending on how they land, you get points. But uh, I feel like there's an RPG in there somewhere. I think I, I think I did have that as a kid. They're like little rubbery, like little pigs. Yeah, yeah. Um, what, you're, what you've all missed uh, is the 2D2 system. Just flip a coin, two coins, uh, success or fail. There, there you go, there you go. Anyway. Um, the, speaking of news, uh, there's a lot of it this week. Speaking of things that people like, Baldur's Gate 3 has launched on PC and uh, uh, lots of folk are talking about it. I'm not holding my breath for an answer to this question. Have any of us played it? I have it downloaded and installed and ready to go, but I literally got my microphone set up like five seconds before I joined the call for this stream. So I'm I'm kind of waiting to uh, to stream playing it just because I right. feel like that would be fun to do with the community, but I'm so ready. I cannot wait to play this game. So many friends are saying such good things about it. I, I was not interested up until about a month before release and the hype train hit and I've like <laughs> like my pupils dilated. Um, I'm building a new PC for this game, basically. I'm not buying a PS5. I'm not buying anything current gen. I'm happy with my Nintendo Switch and like a PC that can play everything else, basically. I want I want handheld on the go and something to play like Baldur's Gate and Elden Ring and stuff like that. Yeah, I was similar. I, I, I didn't have a huge amount of interest in this game until more recently for, for pure personal taste reasons that I'm not a huge fan of like isometric tactical rpgs specifically because i just feel so divorced from the action i feel i don't feel connected to my character in the way that the game wants me to feel because you know i kind of want to be down over the shoulder kratos style feeling the the viscera of tearing things apart with my frosty axe and and bare hands but 
Uh, you know, Dante, he's been playing it in early access since well before it was released more recently, uh, and he's done nothing but play it since getting back from the States. So he's really excited. The community is absolutely loving this game uh, at the moment. Um, Sean, have you have you taken up the, the keyboard and mouse? I have not. I am cursing that it is good and popular because now <laughs> when I text my group and say, hey, everybody free this Friday to play, there's always someone saying, no, I can't. And I'll be like, okay, well, how about a board game or how about some other RPG? And they're like, well, we could just play Baldur's Gate 3. And the last thing I want to do after spending 12-hour days on my screen is to go back to my screen for another three hours of a of a game, which I'm sure is going to be wonderful. And I'm sure when Baldur's Gate 4 comes out, I will be pl- I will start playing Baldur's Gate 3 because that's how I generally work. With, I'm playing Tears of the uh, Breath of the Wild right now. So, uh, you know, that that's how I roll. No, it's just everyone has been so hyped about it that it has made me hyped about it. It's, yeah. it's yeah. I've never played a Baldur's Gate. I've never been interested in playing a Baldur's Gate, but now mm-hmm. everyone around me is excited and suddenly <laughs> I'm excited. Maybe once a year there's kind of a game that approaches this, but maybe once every two years where, you know, if you're, if you're sitting uh, looking at your Steam friends list or Discord or your PlayStation friends list in my case because I'm a pleb, um, and just, you know, this happened with Skyrim. It was just Skyrim, Skyrim, Sky. Everybody on the list was playing that game, you know? Um, I think, uh, Breath of the Wild was pretty similar a couple of years ago. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of other examples of this Red Dead Redemption. Maybe everybody's just playing that, um, when you look through your library of friends. So this feels like, uh, a moment in the, the video game space. And, and if we're being honest, I can't think of the last time that, like, a Western computer RPG dominated media like this. I mean, Witcher sure. 3, maybe? Yeah. That was 2015. That was, that was a, kind of a oh, while ago. Now that you mention that, yes. Uh, <laughs> he brought it up. You know who yeah, else James is excited? Witcher Watch? Yeah. <laughs> you know who else is excited about this? Hasbro. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Do you think that Baldur's Gate three will be more profitable for them than Honor Among Thieves? You know, that's that's a good question, and let me answer that for you in the words of Chris Cox, the CEO of Hasbro. And just to put a financial uh, perspective on this, we will likely make more money on Baldur's Gate three than we have made on all of our film licensing for the last five to ten years combined. Mm. That so wasn't even not a plant. plant. <laughs> How were you yeah. just prepared oh with my that? God. I have a friend who does this for me. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to be honest, it kind of Baldur's Gate 3 and uh, Honor Among Thieves kind of inversed my expectations where I remember talking with Sean, I think on Mastering Dungeons saying like, you know, Honor Among Thieves is going to be huge. It's going to like be a Marvel level kind of movie for D and D. Mario movie, what whatever, that'll be crap. Uh, and then it kind of like it did fine. People enjoy it, but it definitely sim the pot simmered on it. It didn't boil. Um, and I thought the opposite for this because Larian's games previously were popular. Make no mistake, people loved. Um, was it? Was it? I always get a couple divinity, of divinity. Divinity original. Divinity. Sin. Okay, I always get that confused with Pillars of Eternity because they're kind of similar isometric uh, fantasy games. But uh, you know, they they were popular enough. People bought them, but they weren't you know flying off store shelves. So I thought Baldur's Gate Three was going to do about the same as one of those. And it's 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 it is the ninth most played game. Uh, on Steam, uh, with the last record that I saw yesterday, it might have gotten higher since then, with 875,000 concurrent players. Um, just below, uh, I think, less than 4,000 consecutive players away from Hogwarts Legacy. So uh, I know the, the community would definitely love to beat that game out um, for the eighth spot. And also stirring up a little bit of... Um, Little bit of little bit of the tall poppies in the uh, in the uh, in the yes. video game industry, getting getting a little bit of just a little bit of little bit of pushback. This has been a very interesting controversy to watch because the it boils down to essentially uh, Baldur's Gate three is so good that we're worried it will raise the bar for everyone else, and you know on its face that seems like a very petty complaint. Uh, But it's actually quite nuanced and multifaceted here because 
Baldur's Gate 3 is a game that essentially had a six-year development cycle, which, in my opinion, is a heinously long development cycle. It worked for this game because of some specific reasons, which is why it's so nuanced. But I think most games' dev cycle should be maybe two or three years. Sure. Doing, doing this whole enormous thing that Baldur's Gate 3 was able to do was a really unique circumstance. Now, we shouldn't say games should be worse. Like, that's not the argument I think that we should take away from this. But it should be that not every game needs to be a 120-hour AAA experience in the way that, that, that this game is. Mm. Um, but we we look at Larian Studios in particular. They're you know they're a northern European country. They have some let's call them socioeconomic factors that allow studios like that to be really successful in a way that maybe an American studio might not be. Gotcha. Um, allow a game to simmer for a long time, like a good red sauce, like a good meat sauce on the stove for six years before it's perfect and ready to go. Well, I also think it, it speaks to the success of, and I've been really critical of this model or, or just not, not critical, but just not engaging with it myself is that early access model um, of getting the game out early. Uh, another kind of famous success story from that being Hades, which I played the the finished version of earlier this year mm-hmm. and really, really enjoyed, mm-hmm. um, but did not play it at all during early access because personally I'm just like, I don't want to play a half-finished game. Like I mm-hmm. want to wait till till the thing's done. But my understanding of how it works is that the developer gets active feedback from their community while they're developing the game uh, and can see, you know, they can stress test the game with the largest playtest uh, group that they could get, which is the general public, but also have income coming in off of the game because you need to purchase it to be able to access that early access period, which might kind of buffer them out um, longer financially. I'm not entirely sure if that's how it works, so somebody who's more familiar with uh, early access might be able to correct me there. Um, but uh, it, it, you know, it seems like a relatively successful model from uh, what I have seen from studios that managed to pull it off well. I also played Hades when it was out of early access. I didn't even know about it before its early access ended. But sure. it, you know, that game kind of saved me in 2020 in the depths of like right. lockdown. Hades is another game, another huge early access success story where players get to buy into the game and then see almost like a live service game, right? Like an MMO that gets regular updates. That's an enormous draw. And one that we see wizards trying with dubious success to capture with the 1D&D playtest stuff, right? Mm. Where in a video game, you can take it kind of as the computer gives it to you. We have to deal with a you know 50-page playtest packet every month. Um, but there's two unifying factors that link Larian and Supergiant, who made Hades, uh, that keep them from being just like, here's an early access trend where we push out a half-baked, half-finished game. And we uh, eat up the slop, everyone. Tell us what's wrong and we'll, you know, cobble it together for its Christmas release. Blah. Well, and it's a Supergiant and Haiti and uh, Supergiant and Larian are both really committed to their workers and to their audience, right? They do not have Activision level shareholders breathing yeah. down their neck the entire time. Um, which certainly gets games on the shelves, but it doesn't get you these cultural phenomenon games, these sort of once every five years sort of games like Hades or BG3. Well, yeah, I think that's the thing, right? Is if I think back to like The Witcher 3, Red Dead Redemption, um, I'd like to think Skyrim, although Bethesda is a little bit more of the, you know, the the, the typical, uh, especially now, industry kind of company. Um, but uh, to, to quickly uh, draw back to... Uh, Zalavier Nelson Jr. Uh, was the individual who tweeted the original tweet that started this discussion around like don't don't expect all games to be this good from now on and it's setting a new standard. And I think they clarified their point was more that you know uh, pouring money, talent, and time into a video game doesn't automatically equal success because creating video games is incredibly complicated someone once described it to me as like if you're making a film um you know you take your camera and you point it at what you want to shoot if you're making a video game you have to build the camera first uh is essentially like the difference in the level of complexity um and yet the what what i see similar between uh, supergiant and larian is all they did was want to make something cool that was their priority Let's make something that's damn cool and let's prioritize making this thing as cool and interesting 
uh, as we can make it as a as an artistic production, you know, rather than how do we figure out how to monetize this thing in the the most effective way possible? Maybe that strategy being the early access model. I don't know, but well, uh, it, it shocks me that this happened because of their relationship with Wizards, uh, because having that kind of licensor agreement really makes this sort of thing hard. Your licensor can say, "We we need this. We need this on store shelves." And you know, sure. if you're if you're the licensee, then it's like. Okay, um, because and you can see that in Baldur's Gate three, right? Uh, there's a lot of references to Baldur's Gate descent into Avernus, which itself became kind of Baldur's Gateified to pair with the Larian game, mm. uh, and and that module came out four years ago, uh, and Baldur's Gate three doesn't really explain the descent into Avernus stuff, at least as far as you know the the playthrough stuff that I've watched has done, so. Uh, you can tell there was some, you know, licensor licensee intermix happening here, but for one reason or another, Wizards did not rush Larian into bringing the game to store shelves. Perhaps because of how successful their early access was, and they wanted to see it brought to fruition because the early access was already doing gangbusters. Speaking of things that are uh, doing gangbusters, or thinking, speaking of developing things early. Um, uh, switching from uh, talking about video games to talking about board games, uh, a little bit of Ghostfire Gaming news. Aberration, the board game, which we've been loosely teasing uh, since January, um, uh, has finally made its way to Game Found. Uh, it is launching in late September, but if you want to go follow uh, the page, um, Hannah, I'm sure, will be uh, with a link into the Twitch chat any second now. Um, uh, but it's a cool game. Sean, you have played uh, early versions of Aberration when it was in playtest. What did you think? I loved it. Uh, it is. It hit all the notes that I wanted to have in this game. I had no hand in the actual development of the rules. I was co uh, consulted with lore from Etheris and from Grim Hollow with monsters and locations. But in terms of the mechanics... But Peter Lee uh, is the person that we tapped to design this. So um, if you've heard of a little game called Lords of Waterdeep or a little game called Tyrants of the Underdark or a little game called D&D &D or Magic the Gathering, then you know Peter's work. So you can uh, count on it being well designed. And I I have to admit that the playtest I did, it was about midnight my time. So <laughs> details are a bit fuzzy. But I know I kicked butt and I enjoyed it. No, perfect time. Wait till the sun goes down and, exactly. and the, the owls are out. I don't know if there's owls in your area. Um, yes. uh, for folks that, that, that don't know, if this is the first you're hearing about it, Aberration is a tower defense game where it's set in Grim Hollow, which is Ghostfire's uh, you know, flagship dark fantasy setting, and the great beast has wandered through the forest, through the wilderness, close to a village, causing all sorts of aberrant monsters and mutants to wander out of the forest uh, and try to assail a village. And you play, uh, it's a cooperative game, playing as one of four uh, defenders of the village who have to try keep the darkness at bay, uh, somewhat literally, as one of the mechanics is using flat fire to kind of uh, dispel shadows so that you can see what it is you're fighting, um, rally the villagers, get them to, to, there's worker placement elements to it, trying to get the villagers to, to help you out, uh, gaining new resources, weapons and equipment uh, and things like that. Um, and it is super cool. I actually haven't gotten to play it yet because every time someone in the office is like, let's do a play of Aberration, I'm like, I have to write a script or whatever I'm doing instead. But uh, it it looks really exciting. I'm, I'm really uh, keen to finally sink my teeth into it. So Game Found page, link in the Twitch chat. It'll be below or over there somewhere uh, if you want to go check it out. Uh, and speaking of things that are coming in the future... D&D Playtest 5 survey results are in. Jeremy Crawford sat down with Todd Kenrick to talk about it as they do. I feel like they've got to be running out of rooms in the Wizards' offices to be shooting these videos, right? Because they've really started to, to shake up their locations. And two, two people actually walked into the background of this video and were like, ooh, ooh, they're filming a video. It was hilarious. It was great. Go, go look for that specific bit. Um, uh, uh, any thoughts on the feedback to this? Did anybody watch the video? Dale is muted. The high-level overview, from what I took out of this, it seemed like most of what they were saying was 
anything that we reduced the power that the characters would have, the players did not like. So okay. we're reverting back to 2014. Anything that added options or power to the characters, the players liked, and therefore we will be moving forward with that, which is okay, but it goes back to a fear I had at the beginning of this process, which is rather than new additions raising the, the fields and starting from scratch, including power levels, we are now going to take all the power that was there in this edition and just add to it, which right. may be fine, but it's something that I fear a bit. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, I, I don't disagree. I mean, my takeaway wasn't, I hadn't noted as much with the power level, but certainly with the the change, you know, mm -hmm. something that's changed, if it's not liked, then it's walked back to virtually what it was before, um, which is starting to, you know, th this process we were so excited for it a year ago. It feels like it was like, yeah, we're going to be included. And they're asking the community what they think. And it is starting to feel a little designed by committee in a with the largest committee they can find, which is uh, the community. But I'm also wondering if there is a certain bias going into the feedback that they're getting from the most engaged players of the game who like not just like things to be more powerful, but like things the way they like things. You right. know, I, yeah. Dale, what is going on? We got like colored bars for a second there. Like, you installing old alien technology <laughs> into your computer? Like. <laughs> yeah, that that bit's weird. Yeah, okay. Oh, yeah. oh she's been abducted. Yeah, sorry, let's, go ahead. Let's yeah. gaze at the peaceful serenity of the deep forest mm. instead of worrying about this. I agree. I agree. And. And, and part of me is actually happy with this. The the part that it has trepidation is there, but part of me is like, we weren't ready for a new edition anyway. Yeah. And if they were doing this for the 50th anniversary of D&D, &D, then why not just put out something to celebrate the 50th anniversary of D&D &D and leave the rules that are fine with most people alone? And maybe that's what we're going to end up with. Uh, after all of this Dermon Strong of of uh, of chaos of all that could be, we'll end up with what should have been, which is, hey, let's continue with 5e and see what we can do with a rule set that's pretty good and we can still adjust based on whatever product that we're making. You know, Sean, when Wizards started calling this the 5th edition rules refresh, mm -hmm. uh, I, you know, initially I was a little bit, had some consternation over the, the bad mouthfeel of that mm -hmm. long and unwieldy phrase, but yeah. I think it's kind of the most accurate thing to what it is they're right. doing. They're just, you know, they're moving the furniture around in fifth edition and maybe adding a few new things to the, to the dining room. And mm -hmm. that's where we'll start from again. And I'm okay with that. Maybe for someone who doesn't want to pay 150 bucks for a new trio of core rule books, that's a bad thing. Um, I, I can yeah. see some consternation there. Yeah, I, I think I agree that like it was starting to get a little bit unwieldy having, um, you know, Xanathar's guide and especially Tasha's guide to everything or cauldron of everything, kind of adding all these ancillary rules to the core classes that were optional, but there was also maybe a better way of doing things. Uh, for some of them, especially with the floating uh, ability scores, rather than having them strictly tied to to your species. Um, but it felt unwieldy. You know, the stack of books that I had to take to games started with three and and has ballooned out to like five or six mm -hmm. that I need to put in a big suitcase whenever I, people joke that I'm moving in when I show up to run a game of D&D. &D. <laughs> so, so a refresh sounds good to kind of, you know, consolidate that all back into the player's handbook and then kind of start with splat books and expansions uh, again from there. It just, it feels like wizards have discovered that's what they want to do through the process of doing this play test thing. You know, it's been, a, it's been a, an exploration for them as well uh, in terms of how they want to supply the, the audience with the new rules. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, J Jeremy also did an interview with Christian Hoffer at comicbook.com. Yes. where they talked yeah. about something like this. And it works out well for Wizards too because 
people were getting the idea that all like Spelljammer and Planescape and Dragonlance were going to be a one and done book or a one shot affair. And that was it. They weren't going to get anything more. And by not having to completely make a new rule set, wizards can take their, uh, can allocate their development resources now to giving us more in-depth uh, pieces of this multiverse that they're building and do cool things with that rather than try to do cool things with the base game. Mm -hmm. So I think in the long run, it's going to work out well for most people. Like you said, some people might be unhappy, but I think in the long run, most fans are going to be happy with a refresh rather than a new edition. Yeah, that, I, I think that's true, especially given that we're getting so many new games mm -hmm. anyway, as it is between the MCDN one, Daggerheart. Now we've got to look at, um, mm -hmm. and we'll take a look at it ourselves in a moment. But yeah, I think you're right. You know, five E stays as it is. Yep. Yeah, I tend what to about agree. Now? Yeah. Woo! <laughs> Woo! <laughs> it's a new edition of Dale. It's a rules refresh of Dale. That's right, a Dale I refresh. Mean <laughs> I don't remember what the question was. <laughs> uh, talking about the Playtest 5 survey results. Oh, God, uh, I don't know. <laughs> all right, fair enough. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> We're just glad to have you here. Dante, now. we don't need this in the final cut. <laughs> Speaking of uh, exciting things appearing out of thin air, um, I missed this <laughs> while I was at Gen Con itself, but uh, have seen it in the... Aftermath, which is the Daggerheart uh, Gen Con preview. Um, and it was a pretty detailed look at this game. They showed a lot of it. Um, uh, there's a really comprehensive breakdown of it. Um, uh, Christian Hoffer, uh, who you mentioned just before, did a great comicbook.com article that was pretty detailed about it. And there's also a really great interview with Spencer Stark on the Legends of Ad Adventress YouTube channel um, uh, that goes into detail about the game. Uh, what do we think? We're talking about Daggerheart now? Daggerheart. Yes. Um, it looks exciting. Uh, it Mostly more than the game itself, which I'm sure will be well-designed. I trust Spencer Stark to design us a good game, uh, whether it's Alice is Missing or Candela Obscure or whatever. Uh, truly to me the most important part about it is is the cultural impact um because i cannot imagine this game being made and not having it be the system that critical role decides to use for their future campaigns yeah uh, it only makes sense from a business standpoint for critical role productions to uh not work with a another company's game system primarily right i don't think they'll drop dnd forever i think dnd is still a wonderful thing you know it's it's not like streamers stream video games they make themselves that's not that's not the model um but you know you, you hear about challenges that happen between crp and hasbro in the making of the vox machina animated series sure. and you can tell that well creatives have a lot of respect for each other sometimes you know companies when they touch they get a little bit radioactive you want to avoid that sort of corporate toxicity as much as possible and so it just seems smart but will that catapult that game will that catapult dagger hearts into monumental success is critical role whatever new campaign they have going to be strong enough to do so yeah i mean this, this game seems pretty specifically designed for critical role in the way that it's 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 it almost it also almost seems like it's kind of uh, going in the opposite direction to the MCDM game, where the MCDM game is trying to create robust, strategic combat. Um, uh, the Daggerheart game is emphasizing storytelling and how a situation makes your character kind of feel um, and and more um, uh, uh, more kind of floaty mechanics that that might sound like a criticism i don't intend it to but just kind of like with the with the fear and the hope dice kind of creating new effects that as far as i'm aware feels like the the gm or the players need to uh or have more room to create more uh rather than having closed uh effects from the dice rolls uh happening 
any of that makes sense. So mm-hmm. it's interesting. Yeah. It, it is it is a quite different game from D&D and I think quite different from what MCDM are doing as well. Which I think is going to be interesting to see as well because, I, you know, I think in terms of um, there's this weird like symbiotic uh, relationship between the success of this, this game system and the success of Critical Role, right, sure. in terms of, um, you know, will Critical Role continue to be as successful once it swaps to its own uh, game system? My theory is probably yeah um and will this game become successful because it's attached you know it's it it works in both directions but there's also this element uh in the background that i am kind of keeping an eye on which is that with every new campaign from critical role you see that the players are looking for things that are a little bit more advanced a little bit more complex right Right. you know campaign one it's very choose your class follow it through to the end we got a tiny tiny little dipping of the toe into multi-classing towards the end but broadly speaking it was you know keep it simple second campaign we start to mess around with you know let's make some more bespoke uh subclasses let's let's make things that are more um specific to the characters right which we also got with percy um in campaign one but but the further they go the more each of these players becomes familiar with D&D as a system, the more they want those, in in my opinion, looking from the outside, it seems like they want more complexity. Um, we've got a lot of multi-classing now in this one or a lot more complex subclasses being chosen in the third campaign. And it will be interesting to see uh, how that impacts a, a new campaign to, to see whether it's like, okay, how how well does this new system facilitate the kind of nuanced character choices that these players are ready to be making. Um, Because for a little while, I think that a new jungle gym in a new system will absolutely fill that sort of void. But but how long? How long? And how well will it handle that? I think that's a great question because Daggerheart seems like a game that... um I don't think it, I don't think it's less crunchy necessarily than 5e only because I don't know enough about the the full system but it definitely as somebody pointed out in the chat seems to be friendly towards streaming and improvising and uh communal storytelling as opposed to crunchy kind of exploration of mechanics if that makes sense I'm coming at it from a different angle I agree with James that the cultural aspect of it can be just as important as the game aspect i agree with dale how is the streaming going to affect the game and vice versa just coming straight at it from game design i have played dozens and dozens of games that i've played once and thought this game is awesome and then i've played it the second time and i'm like this game is pretty cool the then i play it the third time i'm like i am bored with this game now i am ready to move on so questions one how does a game play on repeated play? How does leveling entice people to keep coming back? Question two, does your game suck if the DM sucks? If the game master sucks? If it is a game that requires game masters to be top-notch storytellers, how is it going to play when your game master might not be a top-notch storyteller or doesn't live up to your expectations? And I'm not trying to bring in the game has been ruined by Matt Mercer because he's so good and all other DMs are bad. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying in terms of making the game mesh with the narrative, you can try to tie mechanics to narrative, but if the game master or the players aren't able to make that jump smoothly and quickly, then your game may end up looking like a mishmash of mechanics that don't actually speak to an ongoing story. This is the big challenge with rules like games is because, like you said, Sean, they become so dependent on who's running them. And uh, I, I think back to the guy who's making this game, Spencer Stark, because, you know, uh, I played with him for about 30 minutes before a fire alarm interrupted at a big bad con <laughs> last year. Um, and you can tell just by being in the room with the guy that this is one of the best RPG storytellers out there right now. He's just a consummate improviser. He's designing a game that he would be good at running, that he wants to run. I think all game designers do that. We create the games we want to play. Otherwise, what's the point? And so it might be that the market for the game is smaller. There may be fewer people who are really good at running this game because rules, really crunchy rules, are great scaffolding. 
there there's something concrete that you can hang on to rather than kind of making something up on the fly. Uh, but if there is a significant population of GMs and players who don't need that scaffolding or don't want that scaffolding, I'm not trying to put any sort of like value judgment on this, right? Because it's different play styles. Um, then, then the game will succeed. And the real question that underlies that is, is the gaming industry mature enough to have that diverse player base? And, you know, having been through the past 10 years of fifth edition and seeing the, the meteoric rise of 5e and the RPG field kind of rising with it, I'm, I feel weirdly comfortable saying that, yeah, we're ready for this. Like, even five years ago, it would have been like, nope, it'll flop. It'll be a really beautiful, you know, <laughs> it will be a falling star. It will burn up on reentry and it will look amazing while doing it. But no, I think, I think this will catch the wind. Yeah, I, I don't disagree, but I, I think it's a, a really good point that Sean raises in terms of, like we talked last week, I think it was, um, about meta currencies within uh, role-playing games uh, and how 5e kind of provides relatively few to the players to be able to change the story. Um, Christian Hoffer in, in the comicbook.com article talked about uh, having played a game of Daggerheart with Spencer at Gen Con and found that Spencer was asking the players, what does this room look like? What does the monster look like? Um, you know, really investing them and drawing them into the storytelling of the game itself. But it wasn't clear to me if that was a Spencer um, GM style, because you could do that with 5th edition as well, or whether that was a, uh, whether that is a mechanic that is built into Daggerheart that is going to help GMs D DM in that style. And if a, if a GM prefers not to GM in that style, if a GM prefers to be like, look, this is, I, I want the players to react to the world that I'm creating because of, you know, it's a horror game and I don't want them to feel like they're in control of what's happening or whatever X reason, or the GM doesn't feel they're as good at improvising on the fly or reacting to, to player suggestions. They prefer to have everything written out for them ahead of time. Does this game enforce a need for, for communal storytelling to that level? Or is that just Spencer's style of GMing? You know, that's not clear about Daggerheart yet. Yeah. One interesting game mechanic in it uh, that I wanted to discuss was this idea that you make some sort of attack roll and rather than having it just hit or miss, and then you roll damage separately, there is this gate almost that that corrals your damage into four different categories. So you either don't do any damage, you do a point of stress, but nothing else. One point of damage, two points of damage, or three points of damage. And that's the range. It looks to be the range of which you can do damage on your with your attack, which is a really interesting mechanic because it can for a for someone who's used to fifth edition and being a like a power gamer who just is worried about damage per round that you want to say, well, I am plus 27 to hit and I can do up to 90 points of damage. Where in this game, even if you're plus 90 or plus 30 to hit, no matter how high you roll, you're still going to only be doing three points of damage. Right. And and that's that's elegant and cool because it still could capture the the power gamer who still wants to be able to roll really high, but it mitigates the amount of chaos they can bring to the the game design because they're limited in the amount of damage that they're doing. Now I, I'm going just based off reading the comicbook.com article, of course, so I may be way off base, but that was really interesting that that was the way they decided to handle the sort of uh, game loop in terms of combat and damage. Yeah. I mean, for me, I think that power gamer is hoping, cause I, I, I thought the, there's a whole discussion to be had here about how the this game is deliberately trying to offset mental load of mm -hmm. the maths of like adding different things together and figuring out how much damage is done and et cetera. And the the way that damage is dealt inside of these gates seems um uh, to lean into that. 
I suppose what I would hope is for those power gamers, the answer is the game is balanced in such a way that it it's hard to hit that highest gate of damage and deal that three damage or four damage, mm-hmm. whatever the highest gate is, consistently. So the power gamer goal becomes not necessarily doing, you know, the most to the to the decimal point, but just always being able to hit that fourth gate or third gate, mm-hmm. whichever whatever the highest gate of damage is. Just being like, yeah, right. my character is built in such a way that I hit that every time unfailingly, yep. even against a golden dragon or whatever the the high level right. threat seems to be. And that's why it's so ingenious because you are still capturing that audience mm. who wants to be right the most powerful character without disrupting the game as as those players sometimes do. Mm. And so I just I thought that was fascinating and a really cool uh, mechanic to to shoot for. What do we think of the uh, the tactile elements of this game? Um, there there was. The, the way the character sheet is placed, um, Christian kind of described it as you almost have three sheets that kind of um, metatron together. Is that the... No, that's not the reference I'm thinking of, but they kind of Voltron. slide together. Voltron, yeah. thank you. You have like three character sheets that kind of Voltron together, get tucked under each other, and then you have cards that you place over your character sheet into slots to be able to to show what your character abilities are to avoid going and flicking through a book to find the reference, um, which seems really interesting to me. It also seems to really, you would have to build a bespoke uh, online solution to this, a, a D&D Beyond or a um, Nexus isn't necessarily going to work for this style of, of system that they've created. Um, but how did we feel about those? Does that sound exciting? Uh, I am excited. Uh, you're totally right, Ben, that it would require a bespoke interface. Um, but one thing that I often find to be the single greatest draw to me to a new RPG is a good character sheet. Like, uh, I think Numenera made me want to play it for that character sheet alone because it's gorgeous and it looks like a piece of art and it's intricate but also usable. And I was like, I, I was at an RPG club in school and I was like, gotta play this game. Um, and uh, that may not be everyone's experience, but it's it's a big draw. And it's, I think if the 21st century has taught anyone anything, it's that people respond well to intuitive interfaces. And so if this game has an intuitive interface built into it, that might be a great way to get people into the game. Yeah, layout in general in a, in, in a core rulebook and uh, even the order that they present information in is so important to me. It's so deep in my heart. It really, really, if I can like flip to the right page easily makes a huge difference. If I can see the information I need quickly makes a huge difference. And those things, and then you make it pretty. Oh, I'm a sucker. I'm a goner. I'm absolutely in. You know, I, I agree a million percent with James. This is, it's, it's such a huge, important aspect from my perspective. Um, uh, uh, <laughs> modifier tokens. That was, a, that was interesting. It really seems like they're going beyond, like, the game design here, Spencer seems to have a talent for, for thinking outside the box a little bit in terms of, like, what's something that nobody's thought. Like, let, let, let's not just change the maths or the dice that we're using in this game, but let's really change the form factor of this game. Like let's like we're using uh, tokens, we're using cards, we're using you know all this extra other stuff. Yeah, you need to see it in play. You need to see how it adds to the game or detracts from the game when yeah. real, you know, tired, befuddled, work-ridden players at the end of a long week sit down at the table and want to play. Do those pieces add to the game or detract from the game for gotcha. more or less of the audience? And it, it might add to, like we've talked about with design and character sheets, it may add to the experience to the point where it's great. Uh, if Wizards of the Coast tries to make a make something where you bring your race or your ancestry and your class together and build a character sheet that way, and they sell cards. What do people shout? Oh, rip off. They're trying to make us buy extra cards for this game. Boo, boo wizards. Now someone else does it and it's genius. So it's, it's all about the audience. It's all about, right. The, the, uh, 
how it comes together and plays at the table with the audience that the game has in mind. I am tempted to say that if you make a game that relies on cards heavily in the way that this game seems to really want you to have cards and tokens and bits and bobs, if you make those free to print at home, will people who complain about cash grab things be quieted? Part of me wants to say yes, but there's this cynical part of me that says no. They'll if someone wants to complain about a game, they'll find mm. any uh, mm. they'll find any angle of attack they can, whether or not it's sensical. Yeah, I mean, it depends on how they uh, depends on what the business model is, right? And that's what's going to be fascinating to see around this game that's so tactile. Spencer talked a lot about using. Um, you know, creating whatever you want for your modifier tokens, you know, using tokens from little little squares from another board game or creating something that feels bespoke and unique to your character. But, like, it seems obvious that they should retail modifier tokens that they create themselves, right? Um, so the business model of this game being so tactile in the way that it is is going to be fascinating. We've seen the the cover art which is not on the front of a book, but it's on the front of a box, um, is what was sitting on the table in the, the video that I watched. Um, so presumably this, this game is going to be sold in a box with the deck of cards and the, the rule book, however thick that happens to be. Whether it's closer to a thick board game manual than it is like a role-playing game manual will be interesting to see. Um, what monster stat blocks you know, look like how monsters play is going to be fascinating to me as someone who really enjoys that side of the game. Um, But then how do they continue to retail this thing? Are they going to release, you know, the expansion box and it comes with uh, another bunch of cards for their classes and their, their species or their, they called them, I think, heritages and communities or lineages and communities, I believe they were called. Um, Or are they going to do smaller boxes that are like, here's a whole bunch of new, um, here's a new class in a, in a small box, you know, and it's just like a $20 purchase. That's going to be fascinating to see, uh, how they retail it and, and package it in that way. It's, it's also worth noting. I mean, even, even on the level of just dice, right. We already see this kind of a, a model work quite well, where it's like, yeah, you can, you can play this game with whatever set of, of polyhedral dice you have at home, although. I suppose I should point out that not every household has a set of polyhedral dice. Um, but, you know, it's, it's yeah, you could, you could use whatever dice you have at home. But also, we at Paizo have created a special set of um, dice that are specific to this campaign. You know, do you want the Curse of the Crimson Throne dice? Well, here they are. Get them while they're hot. You know what I mean? Like you can yeah. you can have your um your specialty uh, sort of official official sort of knickknacks. Um, and I think as long as it is something that the player base has a reasonable chance of of um, having just sort of a boring old average version of their own at home mm. uh, or having access to it, like like printing them, as was mentioned. I think broadly. Uh, it's something that people are used to seeing. So I don't think it would be an off-putting sort of merchandising model to see at all. I don't want them to sell class expansions for the sole reason of I had that idea first when I was thinking of a a deck building based (laughs) TTRPG Mm -hmm. and I want to do that. (laughs) Don't you take this from me, Spencer Stark. I just think it's so funny the way that this all works because I've been I've been futzing around with the concept of a deck building tabletop RPG as well and it's just funny seeing everything at the same time be like okay well here we go cards yeah yeah they're, they're the new hotness they're the new dice everybody's gonna you just have got a to accept cards. it it's yeah. it's sheep rolling over greats man yeah. it, t- it took 20 years but finally dice have supplanted or have been supplanted by cards we got there we did it everyone um uh, yeah yeah this will be fascinating uh to see they didn't mention any sort of release date or release window or anything for this did they they said i think we'll be seeing more of Daggerheart within the next year was the vague kind of thing i remember seeing but nobody remembers differently nobody remembers differently so let us move on speaking of remembering things differently um dropout is back in production because sam reich uh remembered differently whether his contract uh with sag after had been uh null nullified or not and it turned out it hadn't 
They just so you know, his, his name uh, is pronounced Reich, and I think he would uh, he would <laughs> prefer it be said that way. <laughs> I am so glad you corrected me because I did wonder. Uh, yeah. I did wonder with this specific name. Uh, Sam Reich. SAG-AFTRA have greenlit them, saying that their uh, kind of specific contract was never struck by the union in the first place, um, so they're able to jump straight back into production. Um, and also that this is a partly strategic choice on behalf of the union's uh, believing that putting smaller streamers back into production and providing entertainment for the people uh, will put more pressure on the larger streamers to make a deal sooner. Um, and uh, that Dropout continues to stand in solidarity with the union and has donated uh, up to $20,000 to the Entertainment Community Fund, uh, which is keeping currently striking performers housed and fed, I believe, the important things. Yay! Yay. Yay. Those guys rock. Those (laughs) guys rock. Good for them. (laughs) Look forward to seeing uh, more Dropout content uh, coming. Um, And then last but not least, rounding this out with a question from Gethin. Um, uh, Dale Kingsmill, if we had to, if somebody wanted to email the podcast, where would they send an email to? They would send it to podcast at ghostfiregaming.com. Perfect. Got it in one, uh, which is where Gethin sent this question to kind of round out uh, the kind of Gen Con couple of weeks that we've been having here on the Lawcast. Uh, Gethin asking, how do you make the most out of a convention, especially from an industry side of things? How do you meet new people, meet the right people uh, within the industry for what you're trying to do, discover new games, learn new design skills, make connections um, that being, uh, Gethin's question, me just kind of slight addendum also how to make the most out of a convention from a fan perspective, uh, if you're going to the, fir- for the first time to a Gen Con or a PAX, uh, but answering Gethin's part of the question first. I don't know, uh, how good my answer to this question is because I have learned over the years that, uh, maybe my approach to, um, industry, uh, mixes is slightly different than I don't know is expected. I don't know. I went to I went to like a an explicitly um sort of uh, uh schmoozing gathering. What do they call it when you don't call it schmoozing? Networking. Uh, networking. Networking. There it is. There's the word. Uh there's the buzzword. Um I went to an ex- explicitly networking event and the person who organized it was like and you should talk to them if you want to do this and you should talk. I was like, "Oh, oh, that's not really what I do." Um my approach has always been uh, one that lives largely on social media. Go to stuff, talk to people like a human. You will make friends. When you have an enjoyable conversation with someone, later on, track them down on Twitter, add them on Twitter, and then you'll end up just occasionally talking to each other because um, that's how acquaintances work. And over time, you form friendships and you figure out the people that you would like to work with. And it's just kind of, I don't know. <laughs> Just, just talk to people. It's, I, I promise, it's not as scary as it sounds. Mm. As a nerd who has gone from being terrible at socializing to being okay at socializing, uh, it is a skill, and you will develop it. Um, I think the con-specific answer to this one, because you can, you know, the networking happens anywhere in any industry. Uh, for gaming in particular, I have found that the hotel bar is a good place to be. Okay. Uh, whatever con you're at, sometimes the bar is in the convention center itself. Um, it was that way for, for Origins, and that was neat. Bar was huge there. Um, this is often kind of leveled as a criticism against gaming cons, where you know networking and industry success are paired inexorably with alcohol, and that can be a barrier for entry for people, uh, whether they don't drink or whether you know they are people who do not feel safe in an environment where there's a lot of alcohol. That's a real that's a real issue. But if you can overcome those barriers to entry. The hotel bar is a great way to just kind of meet people where everyone is a little bit relaxed. It's the end of the day. People are drinking. It's chill. If it's chill. I will say, why are you going? And based on that answer, you will then answer your own question. Are you going to become a game designer? Well, the first thing you want to do is play games, run games, talk to people who make games. At certain conventions, Gen Con is its own beast, but at certain conventions, at Game Hole Con, you can sign up and play games with the people who create the game. And you can see how they run it, and you can ask them questions during the game or after the game or before the game about 
maybe a tip that they have for a, an up-and-coming game designer. By running games, we've talked about this before, by running a thousand D&D games, you learn how different players work and you learn why different games work and different adventures work or don't. That's one thing. Then if you want to go from learning to actually doing, you have panels that you can go to where in many of them you can ask questions. And afterwards, often the panelists will be willing to answer your question in more detail and share information with you. Then once you gain a little bit of knowledge, you can actually sign up to give a panel. Even if you're not a industry renowned expert, you can still give a panel on something that you love and that you think is, is interesting. And you will find people coming up to you and asking questions. And in the answers that you give, you will be learning uh, things, whether you're right or wrong. You will find out quickly if you're wrong because people will be willing to tell you, sometimes quite vociferously. But there's there's at large conventions like Gen Con, there's a thousand things you can do, and none of them are necessarily wrong uh, in the choices that you make. You just what are you trying to get out of this particular convention? And and then as James said, as you make friends, as you make connections you will find doors may open that were not open before and always carefully, but with as much enthusiasm as you can step through those doors and see what is waiting there next for you. Uh, yeah, that's, that's the, that's the best I can say. Yeah. And, and pace yourself. It is, yeah. it is <laughs> what you're saying. It's, it's connections. It's not about headhunting. No one likes to be headhunted. So don't, sure. don't go to a convention with thoughts for like, I'm going to meet Matthew Mercer and I'm going to tell him about my game design. And it's good. You know, never, that's, that's never the approach. Cause that's never going to happen. You know, it, instead it is about those smaller connections and you never know who you're going to find. You're going to find all sorts of surprising people, a lot of whom are probably at a similar level to you, mm. who you find you're excited to work with. Mm. And then you build connections with them. They build connections with other people. And over time you have your own network. That's what it is. You're building your own network. You're not, you're not really trying to sort of, you know, shove your way into someone else's. You're building your own. Mm. Um, and, and try to keep that in mind because um, there will be so many people that you have never heard of that will be the most valuable connections that you can form. That's yeah, that's absolutely true. I, I had that e experience, you know, at Gen Con just passed where it was like, ah, I probably didn't necessarily like if I, if I was to create a list of headhunting people, I gotta, gotta talk to these people. I didn't necessarily talk to all those people, but the people that I did talk to were super cool. And I've really enjoyed making those connections. And I think just uh, two bits of advice that I'd throw in here is just like, be yourself, uh, uh, Relax as much as you can, you know, and just be genuine. Talk to people genuinely um, and ask questions, you know. Don't, don't, have you heard about my game idea or have you heard about, you know, ask questions. Um, but also appreciate that, like, you're nervous, they're nervous. It's an industry of geeks. It's an industry of introverts. And I had at least two conversations with two separate people where the both of us just kind of went, ah. we've both got social anxiety. We both feel nervous as shit right now. We don't know each other. Let's get to know each other, you know, rather than um, standing there in a state of anxiety, feeling paralyzed to to approach or talk to anyone. Um, everybody's kind of having a similar experience on some level um, to, to going and having those conversations. If I had to boil my approach down into three rules to follow, it would be have fun, make friends, make a good game in any order you choose. And nowhere in all of that does seeking out prestige or prestigious people factor into it. If you're literally just kind of walking in off the street as well, like if you don't have any industry connections to start with, because, you know, being in the position that I think we're all in at the moment, we, we have a network that gets us invited to certain gatherings or networking events or um, into certain rooms that, that aren't necessarily immediately accessible. Back when I was just starting out, the thing that I did was find out who was running the local Adventurers League um, mm. and just started running D&D games there and then going to stalls and just having a, a conversation uh, at different stalls um, uh, with people. 
So that's something that you can just kind of start doing. Um, uh, yeah. Offer to run games. If, if you're in Australia, uh, get in touch with uh, ARC, the Australian role-playing community. They're looking for people to run games that are explicitly not Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition. Um, uh, if you want to get in touch with them, get in touch with me, I suppose, via the podcast <laughs> email. But, um, <laughs> Um, um, join no, the Ghostfire really Gaming advice. Community Discord. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There you go. Uh, yeah, no, Justice Arman um, during Gen Con, uh, was, we had a, a lovely conversation with a father and son who I believe was the, the father was old school Gen Con forever guy and it was his son's first Gen Con. We ended up in a conversation with them and uh, Justice was sort of explaining his path into the industry and he was saying, you know, you begin by, like, in, in his case, offering to help out at like the Beetle and Grimm's booth at conventions, right? Mm-hmm. You start working, you do a good job, you're invited back the next year. You come back and then, you know, eventually you get to the point where they're like, hey, you're someone we've worked with a lot. Would you like to, you know, uh, you know, go out for this job position? And it becomes, you know, over time you 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 have to be generous with your time in the beginning um, and things will form naturally from there. It's it's surprising how many people you get to know just by being open to to putting yourself in spaces where there are people. Um so even even if you're right at the very beginning of that journey, you you will find people who are very um significant to your own your own uh path in the industry because there is no one path right mm-hmm. there there is no one answer to how do i get in with these people you just have to stay true to what you're doing what your goals are like sean was saying um and over time it it will happen it will form like crystals on a string you would be there's a, shocked. Bit, <laughs> there's a bit of ancient lore it's floating around the internet and when i say ancient lore i mean from like 2016 um of chris perkins giving a talk at the now defunct pack south uh, about how he got into the industry um there's a vod of it on twitch somewhere um i could you know I've, i could hunt it down i've posted about it on my twitter a couple of times because it's such an important video to me it's, it's just chris talking about how he got into the industry how he started as you know lying about his age because he was too young to submit to dragon magazine <laughs> and you know all the way up to here and you know, find that video because he's a great speaker and it's a really cool talk. But uh, essentially he says, yeah, and now all the paths that I took are gone. Yeah, uh, None of them exist mm-hmm. anymore. So you have to make it yourself and and Godspeed to you all. Uh, and like it, it, that's the sort of thing you can either find it depressing or you can find it, you know, inspiring. Uh, and that's all on your outlook. <laughs> you would be shocked about how simple competence will be rewarded Hmm. because there is a lot of incompetence floating around. And it's, I don't say that to be mean, but it's just when you're doing volunteer work, sometimes things give way and you have to take care of your own life. So therefore you're unable to fulfill your volunteer efforts. And that goes all the way up to, you know, freelancers being unable to, deliver the correct product at the correct time uh, under the specifications given. And this is at a professional level. So all the way up, just you know, be competent at what you, you are doing and you will likely shine a little bit more than most people. There's also, there's a great quote in chat here from Alpeggio uh, quoting James Intracasso of MCDM. Uh, and also many of his own things. But the quote is, give back twice as good as you get from Mm. the community. And that is really good advice because I I also think that there is a tendency to, um, we we divvy it up, right? We say, this is the industry and this is the community. And, And the community are the people who consume and the industry are the people who create. But that's not really how it works. We're living uh, in an incredible, um, I, I mean, it's not it's not only a thing that comes with the digital age, but it's so much easier in the digital age, right? But but it's this thing where everyone in the community is creating and everyone in the industry is is consuming. It's just this big circle. We're all the community and we're all the industry. You just have to uh, shift your mindset a little bit to to keep that sort mm-hmm. of in focus mm-hmm. um, because you you really do have to 
give and take. It's 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 every single one of us is doing a bit of both. We're prosumers is the term. Um, so Ooh. no, I think that's some really good advice from James Intercasso as well. The juicy SAT word. Um, <laughs> and like, I, ideally you're doing that not out of some sort of sense of tactical career building, but out of a genuine sense of, you know, wanting yeah. to give back. Um, and I, you know, I think there's a way of being strategic and being authentic at the same time. Cause you know, if you want to build a career, you want to build a career. There's no way around it, but you don't have to be a, you know, an eighties business villain in order to do that. It doesn't hurt, though. <laughs> and with that, sorry, Sean, were you going to say something else? No, just people can tell if you're not authentic. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, uh, just be like we said earlier, be yourself. Speaking of being yourself, you can help us be ourselves. If you are listening to this on YouTube by giving this video a like, if you're listening to it somewhere else, uh, giving it a review helps us get out to more listeners. Um, uh, send an email to podcast at ghostfiregaming.com if you want to ask us a question. We have so many at the moment, so thank you so much for everybody who's been sending them through. Um, I will try to get through them. I apologize if we don't get through to it. Some of them are from months back, uh, and I go back and, and kind of scoop them out. So, uh, your email may appear months after you've sent it, but thank you very much for listening along to this episode of the Eldritch Lawcast. I've been Ben Byrne. Here with James Hake, Sean Merwin, Dale Kingsmill, and we will be back next week with another episode of the Eldritch Lawcast. Babada babada, babada ba, babada ba, babada ba. We're like filling Ben flower pot. You come on, you know Bill and Ben. You know Bill and Ben. Uh, is this from Liftoff? Is this a, is this a weird Liftoff reference? Come on.